Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series in which we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Peter Stanley, an historian at the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at UNSW Canberra uh, at the Australian Defence Force Academy. The series is produced by the Naval Studies Group at UNSW Canberra, supported in this series by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. In this episode, we'll discuss the fate of the German East Asia Squadron in the Great War. It's a follow-on from our episode we released in December 2017 on the Australian capture of Rabaul from the Germans in 1914. To discuss this story, I'm joined by several experts, and it's my pleasure to introduce them. Dr Mark Bailey, whose PhD was on seaborne trade, he and Irish historian John French have made a study of the battles of Coronel and the Falkland Islands. Oberleutnant Zerze, uh, or Lieutenant Junior Grade Tim Derbler of the Federal German Navy is here. Tim's academic studies have included work on both the German and Australian navels. He joins us on the line from Germany. Commander Jeff McGinley, who has also made an academic study of the German East Asia Squadron, is here. And finally, Dr David Stevens, whose award-winning book, In All Respects Ready, is a history of the RAN in the Great War. Thank you all for joining me. Now, uh, first off, uh, can I ask Mark, at the outbreak of the First World War, what comprised the German East Asia Squadron and where was it based? Vice Admiral Maximilian von Spee commanded the force. It was quite powerful. It was based at the German-controlled Chinese port of Qingdao in the Shantung Peninsula. He had two large, modern and quite powerful armoured cruisers. While of a type becoming outdated, they were only seven years old, they had regular crews and a well-earned reputation for excellent gunnery. Of note, very recent research shows that these ships had the most modern ammunition available as well. These vessels were SMS Scharnhorst and Gneisnau. He had three smaller cruisers, and when he left the Shantung Peninsula, left a, a number of small gunboats and a torpedo boat there. They did not go with him. Thanks. Uh, Tim, can we bring you in from Germany? Uh, you can tell us perhaps about the, the commander of the squadron, Vice Admiral Maximilian von Spey. Uh, can you tell us about his background and what the initial plans he had for the outbreak of the war? Yeah, of course. Uh, Vice Admiral von Spey was a very skilled leader with a lot of experience in foreign waters, actually. He joined the German Imperial Navy in 1878, but spent most of his time in West African waters. Um, later on, he became uh, executive officer of the pre-dreadnought uh, SMS Brandenburg. Um, and in this position, on space for action uh, in the Boxer Rebellion as Brandenburg became part of the German Expeditionary Force in the year 1900. In the period between his service aboard Brandenburg in the year 1912, when he took over command of the East Asia Squadron, he held various positions aboard ships as well as ashore. This left him as a very skilled mariner who knew about the hardships for man and material in tropical waters. In 1914, before the July crisis worsened, von Spey took his two battle cruisers, SMS Gneisenau and SMS Scharnhorst, to sea, actually for a journey to the German, German southern colonial possessions. But while at sea, he received various messages via wireless that the situation in Europe was strained and that he should prepare his squadrons for a possible war. In this situation, 
von Space faced several problems at once. First, the squadron was distributed across the Pacific Ocean. For example, the light cruiser SMS Emden was left behind in Tsingtao, Germany's only major base in colonial waters. Um, a couple of gunboats in other parts of China and the light cruiser SMS Nuremberg was bound for the U.S. West Coast to take up diplomatic duties from another light cruiser, SMS Leipzig. Therefore, it was a challenge to him to gather these forces to get the best use out of them as possible. The second problem he faced was that he didn't even know who would be an opponent or the opponent in the case of war. There were at least three different combinations of possible enemies that would have forced another strategy upon him. Firstly, a war just against Russia and France. Secondly, a war against these two, joined by Great Britain and her dominions. The third possible scenario was one in which Japan would join the war along his ally Great Britain as well. So one can see that each scenario re resulted in a gradually reduction of space for safe operations in one hand and a rise in force against him on the other hand. And at least, or at last, uh, his third major problem was the replenishment with coal and other supplies. As I mentioned already, St. Paul was um, Germany's only major base in colonial waters. And he realized that in the case of war, it would have been rather a trap than an improvement of the situation. He was sure that he could rely only on the coal supplies at the islands of Pompeii, formerly known as Ponap, as well as merchant ships equipped with coal to assist the squadron. Thanks, Tim. After the outbreak of... Okay. Yeah, um, you, you mentioned the uh, German strategic options. Uh, that raises immediately the question of what Australian and British strategic options might be. David Stevens, would you like to talk about the, uh, the perceived threat of the German East Asia squadron? Yeah, well, as far as the uh, British Admiralty was concerned, it was a matter of ensuring command of the sea. And that meant remaining on the offensive, carrying out searching sweeps of lo likely areas where the Germans might be, hopefully followed up immediately by the enemy's discovery and destruction. In the first instance, this would have been the role of the Royal Navy's China Squadron, based out of Singapore and Hong Kong. However, the arrival of the Australian fleet in 1913 had brought in a new element to the situation. And in the subsequent months after the fleet's arrival in Sydney, the Admiralty had passed its written war orders to us back to Australia. Now, these would have seen the Royal, Navy, uh, Royal Australian Navy's flagship HMAS Australia, which was a battle cruiser, and one of the uh, mo two modern cruisers the Navy had at that stage, Sydney or Melbourne, steam north to reinforce the China Squadron. The second of those cruisers would head off to the Western Australia, where it, where it would have uh, been working under the Commander-in-Chief of the East Indies. Uh, meanwhile, the older Australian cruisers, or the rest of the Australian fleet, would have been left in, on the Australia station under the uh, Australian fleet commander, Rear Admiral Patey, and they were expected to capture or destroy any of the German unarmoured vessels in or near Australian waters. Now, the problem with that was, of course, the armoured German cruisers. And the Australian Naval Board realised that once their flagship had gone un disappeared under Admiralty control, which was going to happen at the start of the war, that there was no way to get it back. So what they did was tell the Admiralty that it uh, was essential that Australia be left in Australian waters to defeat any German armoured cruisers in Australian waters. 
and this amendment to the orders the Admiralty um, readily agreed to before the start of the First World War. Thanks. So our experts are setting up a situation where there are two opposing naval forces in, in Asia-Pacific waters. Jeff McGinley, you're the Australian expert on the German East Asia Squadron. Uh, what's your take on this, uh, this situation? Well, I'm always just struck just how vague the planning was for this period, both in British imperial documents and in Australian. Thinking was, very, was based on a very broad generalisation of the importance of seeking out and destroying the enemy in some form of great decisive naval battle and that indeed this battle would be very achievable and easy to get to. Yet this was based upon a very poor conception of the vast distances of the Pacific Ocean and the importance that the relatively sparsely spread and widely scattered islands would play uh, in, in, this, in this campaign. These islands will continually attract the naval forces of both sides to secure or destroy their communication facilities as places to coal and resupply their fleets or to deny the same thing to the enemy or to secure future regional uh, pawns and interests. Indeed, most of the battles or near battles uh, in this war were fought near or in sight of land, not on the high seas. And trying to hunt down and find the enemy was actually really quite difficult. And it's probably disappointing that Australian and British naval strategy did not really recognise this. And you would see that over the uh, first few months of the war, there's almost this divergent path that strategy would go down. A British mindset of trying to hunt down the German fleet and an Australian and diplomatic mindset of trying to secure islands and to use the sea for some re more immediate objectives. Mm. Uh, Mark Bailey earlier told us that the German East Asia Squadron was uh, equipped with the latest ammunition. Tim Derbler, would you um, discuss the efficiency of the, uh, of the German East Asia Squadron, uh, the, the firepower that it could bring to bear upon adversaries? Yeah, um, as I mentioned already, it was quite a challenge for von Spey to concentrate his forces, but he managed uh, to prepare them in a suitable way. Aboard the two battle cruisers, for example, they dismantled every unnecessary furniture and other wooden items that would burn easily for security reasons. And another advantage was that he covered the whereabouts of the main force of the squadron for a relatively long period of time due to the strictly controlled radio silence. Uh, he couldn't know that the Allied forces already got hold of a German codebook as a German merchant vessel tried to leave Melbourne, but was stopped by the coastal batteries in the early hours of the war. However, he just used wireless in the, in the case of urgency. Another um, coup was that he uh, sent uh, SMS Anton to the South, Southeast Asian waters to conduct a commerce warfare. Um, her sudden appearance in the Indian Ocean and the apparent disappearance of the other German vessels gave him uh, time for his journey eastwards. Though the actual effectiveness of his squadron rather was the result of training and the modern ammunition than of the equipment. His two battle cruisers were outdated, as already mentioned, and were in disadvantage compared to the modern HMAS Australia, for example. This must have been another reason to him or for him to steam for the west coast uh, of South America. On their way, they had plenty of time to conduct gun drills and uh, had a lot of possibilities 
um, or several possibilities to train their gun crews in live firing, uh, for example, during the bombardment of Tahiti. Thank you. And uh, as we know uh, from the, our earlier podcast, in the meantime, the Australian Expeditionary Force had captured German New Guinea. Can you tell us briefly what von Spee's response was to this major uh, disaster to the, the Germans in, in the Pacific? Um, I don't want to forestall anything from my fellow speakers, but in the end, von Spee went down with his flagship SMS Scharnhorst. Uh, therefore, we just have a little information on his insights and what he actually thought. However, his decision to leave the Pacific and try to break through the Atlantic to get back to Germany was based and very much influenced by the strategic situation uh, at the outbreak of the war. With Great Britain and her dominions joining the war, uh, German New Guinea became more and more, and more unusable to him from a military perspective, due to the superiority of firepower of HMS Australia, um, for example, uh, he couldn't use it as a refuge or vantage point to commerce warfare. Therefore, I would imagine that the capture of German New Guinea just assured him in his approach to steam for the Atlantic Ocean. Mm, thank you. Uh, Jeff, uh, what uh, hopes did the Royal Australian Navy have of being able to engage von Spee uh, before he break, broke out for the Atlantic? We, they certainly had great hopes, and as a young Navy, the, the, the opportunity certainly was something that they were excited about. And at least in theory, there were some vague opportunities that might have occurred as Spee passed through some of the Carolina and Marinana, Mariana Island groups to the north in September. But beyond this vague hope, there was actually a real fear that Spey might actually astray, evade the Australian naval forces and get in, in amongst the Australian shipping and trip convoys and causing much havoc uh, in the process. Uh, this fear was amplified early in the war when the young Australian Naval Intelligence Service reported that the German squadron was actually operating to Australia's near north. And whilst a mistake on their behalf due to incorrect plotting techniques of radio intercepts, it nevertheless did cause great excitement amongst the fleet during their first dawn raid on Rabaul Harbour. Uh, furthermore, the fear of Spey and the fleeting intelligence reports on his movements eastward across the Pacific uh, would dominate Imperial and Dominion naval movements uh, for many months. The Australian and New Zealand governments uh, would not permit their expeditionary forces to proceed north without close escort from the Australian fleet. Firstly, the New Zealand the New Zealanders to Samoa in mid-August and then the Australians to Rabaul in mid-September, thereby restricting the fleet's movements and causing much backwards and forwarding across the southwest Pacific. Later in September and in October, the need to provide a robust escort to the first Anzac troop convoy further consumed available British, Australian and even Japanese naval forces. So Patey, Admiral Patey, the commander of the Australian fleet, certainly chafed under the restrictions of having to escort slow and often delayed expeditionary forces, and then having to provide a defensive backstop against an unlikely thrust by Spey back into the Pacific. Uh, and in, but despite his frustrations, the likelihood of a naval battle was always very small. Firstly, Spey just knew, as Tim has been talking about, just how dominant the Australian forces were. But secondly, constraints with, uh, from a logistical perspective for the Australian Navy were severe. Patey was always watching uh, his coal supply uh, very carefully and the location of his also uh, sparse uh, resupply colliers. And uh, this lack of coal and the poor quality of the Australian coal meant that he was always very much on the defensive and not really in a position to hunt down Spey. Uh, 
And so, yes, the Australian want, Australians wanted to hunt and engage spay, and they were hopeful, but actually proved far more effective in a defensive mindset of securing sea control for the region. So our experts are, are painting a picture now of uh, naval forces moving across this vast ocean uh, and, and really quite dramatic point where uh, the German squadron steaming towards Cape Horn with, with a, an attempt to enter the South Atlantic. Mark Bailey, what British forces are there to counter von Spee's move? The British forces were scattered in small formations. Unfortunately, each was too, too weak to survive a battle with his force. Like Rear Admiral Craddock's force, each was composed of was weak and they were hastily formed and with one exception composed of obsolete ships. There was a Japanese formation as well based out of Hawaii. There was one exception as both Jeff and David have noted and that's the, the RAN. At the time the presence of slow obsolete battleships for some of these formations was thought to, to guarantee their safety. However when you really dig into it, for example aboard the officers of uh, Craddock's old battleship HMS Canopus, they knew their well, and they knew the ship well, and they knew that it was far less well armoured than the German armoured cruisers, and that the German ships outranged their larger but slower firing 12-inch guns. Craddock ships also had out, also had outdated ammunition, which didn't really help. While some of the men manning those ships were exceptionally able, Captain Brandt and the officers of HMS Monmouth being cases in point, some weren't, and even exceptional men couldn't make an obsolete, worn-out ship able to face a first-class enemy. Craddock had the old Drake-class armoured cruiser Good Hope, a weaker vessel of the county class called named HMS Monmouth, and she was in quite poor physical condition, being actually his slowest ship. He had one fast modern light cruiser, Glasgow, the obsolete Canopus, and she was actually detached to look after the colliers, being too slow to keep up with the, with the main formation, and the armed merchant cruiser Otranto. Otranto, Otranto was a good scout, but no capability against a, mer- a warship. She was only a lightly armed merchant vessel. Craddock was a well-respected officer of demonstrated courage and he performed well in his assigned mission on the east coast of South America, the protection of maritime trade. He knew his enemy to be much stronger than his force, but he thought that it wasn't much faster, perhaps 1.5 to 2 knots, and that did give him some limited options. So what did uh, Craddock think he was going to do if, uh, if von Spey uh, appeared in the South Atlantic? Well, Craddock knew he was weaker and slower than von than Admiral von Spey. He understood his orders to be to leave the Falklands, to go to the west coast of South America, locate and engage von Spey. He called repeatedly for reinforcements and these had been denied. Analysis of his actions shows that he understood his disadvantages and thought he was tracking on the day that the Battle of Coronel happened. He thought he was tracking a single small cruiser which the German Admiral had sent ahead as a scout. His view was based on analysis of German radio signals but as Jeff said, the analysis of these wasn't exactly a, a fine art at the time. He also had reports from British merchant ships and port officials in Chilean ports. He planned to trap and sink this cruiser, leaving his secret coaling base at Valinar Roads, just as Canopus and the Colliers had arrived. But Canopus had a serious engine defect and had to stop to, to repair it. He then proceeded north to establish a sweep line and to search north along the coast from Coronel. Tim Durbler, the, uh, the two squadrons met on the 1st of November 1914 in what would become known as the Battle of Coronel. Briefly, can you tell us what happened in that action? Yeah, uh, von Spey knew that Craddock and his squadron were searching for him and his ships, and therefore he tried to deceive them in ordering SMS Leipzig to break its wireless silence. Von Spey wanted to give the appearance that uh, there was only one ship in the area, uh, or one German ship in the area. 
With the help of the German merchant ships, von Spey later learned that the light cruiser HMS Glasgow was in the waters near Coronel. With this knowledge, he ordered his ships to alter the course into southerly direction to engage Glasgow. Uh, Craddock, on the other side, was steaming north to investigate the source of the German wireless signal. And suddenly, the two squadrons met in heavy weather and bad views, 50 miles off the coast uh, of Chile, rather by accident than with purpose. Um, although Craddock was outnumbered and uh, with the uh, uh, outdated ships, he preferred uh, an intercepting course over an avoiding one but couldn't keep up with the faster German cruisers. Thus, von Spey forced Craddock uh, up on a westerly course and opened fire just when the silhouettes of the British ships appeared in front of the setting sun. With greater range, the German ships easily kept their opponents at distance and scored devastating hits on HMS Monmouth and Good Hope in the initial minutes of the battle. Uh, just half an hour later, um, Scharnhorst and Gneisenau ceased fire. Sadly, Good Hope uh, exploded unseen by the Germans due to heavy rain and nightfall, and HMS Monmouth was destroyed by uh, the light cruiser SMS Nuremberg. Under the cover of darkness and rain, HMS Glasgow and uh, Oranto uh, were able to escape from the scene without any major damage. In the end, almost 1,600 uh, uh, British sailors lost their lives, including Rear Admiral Craddock, who went down with his ship. Now, this is a story that's been familiar for a century, but uh, Mark Bailey, you and John French have conducted a research on this action, and uh, what new insights have you come up with? we found that much of the current historiography is incomplete or incorrect. There have been many insights. This is really the first occasion when what happened at Coronel has been thoroughly examined from primary sources. John French and I assume nothing, and we've built our analysis from those sources, including working with descendants of Craddock's crews, and their assistance in finding letters and journals from the men who died aboard Good Hope and Monmouth has been critical. It's the first time that's been done. Now, in doing this, we've found records never before examined, including a remarkable private journal by Charles Gould, a signalman aboard Good Hope. He actually survived the action as he was left behind with a party of four at Valinarides in an observation post. His journal has been lost since 1921 and was rediscovered thanks to the efforts of the descendants of his family, in Canada, in fact. Private papers and journals have given us a look inside the ships of Credit Squadron and they simply weren't supplied for the job they were given. For example, they didn't have warm clothing, they were very short of food. Mostly their food was bread, bully beef, tea and canned lime juice. They were cold, malnourished and as a result sickness, including pneumonia, was endemic. They had no fresh food, little mail, communications were poor. The most surprising insight is that the current historiography is, is quite seriously incomplete. For example, it was longer than thought that Otranto was his slowest ship. In fact, this was Monmouth and she was also unreliable. But she had one of his best crews. It's assumed that the battleship Canopus was his most powerful ship. In fact, she was the weakest of her class, had an older type of armour, was less well-armoured, less, well less seaworthy, and in the weather conditions prevailing, inferior in firepower to HMS Good Hope. Canopus might have had 12-inch guns, but the German 8.2-inch guns outranged them, and they had, outranged them and they had modern shells. Canopus herself had obsolete ammunition, as, the rest of, as did the rest of Craddock's ships. The British ships also had very dangerous ammunition handling habits. 
Recent research also indicates major problems in the Admiralty's trade protection strategy in 1914, including serious issues of professional assessment, and it was Sturdy's job to correct these. Chief among these were unwarranted assumptions regarding the superiority of obsolete British ships with reserve crews against modern, regular German ships, and the utility of old ships against von Spee, especially the battleships. Canopus, for example, had she been a coronel, would have been sunk. The greatest insight was from primary research. It shows that Craddock was placed in a position where he could not fight and he could not run, and he was put there by the orders of the Admiralty and denied reinforcements he'd specifically requested uh, by, Admiral, by Vice Admiral Sturdy at the Admiralty. We now know that Craddock understood he had very little chance against von Spee should they meet, but he thought he had some tactical options up until the instant he realised on meeting von Spee's ships that the German ships actually had a four to five knot speed advantage over him and not the one to two knots he thought. At that point he must have realised that he couldn't fight and he couldn't run, meaning his only hope of survival was to delay the action as long as possible, hoping he could escape after sunset. However... Very accurate German gunnery ended that hope, and in fact, we believe it probable that Craddock was killed or disabled by the third salvo from Scharnhorst about one minute into the action. After that, the destruction of the British squadron was merely a matter of time, and not much time at that. Mm. David Stevens, uh, this crushing British defeat that Mark and Tim have described must have caused alarm and despondency in Australia, but also in London. So what was the uh, British and Australian reaction? Well, I've got to say that um, Australian politicians were probably quite happy that it had happened over in South America, which meant that their shipping was probably safe for the present. And when you consider that Emden was about to be discovered and destroyed shortly afterwards, it would actually mean that our troop convoys could go um, across the ocean unescorted, But the, um, at least across the Indian Ocean. Um, but, of course, on board HMAS Australia, as Jeff has mentioned, they all thought that they were going to get uh, von Spee and the, uh, the fact that he'd um, had such a victory at Coronel, they thought they could have prevented if only they could have got there in time. But as, uh, again, Jeff has mentioned, that wasn't very likely. And, in fact, uh, Vice Admiral pa Rear Admiral Patey at that stage, his own intelligence team, just a couple of weeks before Coronel, had said, you know, we've got no... Uh, it's absolutely impossible, this is a quote, absolutely impossible to guess where the Germans are. We're only fairly certain that they won't be or won't be going to the South Pole and probably not Honolulu. <laughs> um, in practical terms, however, the Admiralty had no intention of ignoring the disaster and their orders thereafter demonstrated the almost unconstrained ability the British Navy had to concentrate naval forces wherever they might be needed. The area of interest looking for von Spee now covered a quarter of the globe, involved six separate British and Japanese formations. The two most important of these were Force A, which had Australia as flagship. And uh, Australia, after being released from patrols off Samoa on the 8th of November, had steamed east to the, uh, the coast of the Americas and there joined with uh, several Japanese cruisers and a British cruiser. And, and then once, the, once they joined together as Force A, headed south down the western coast of the Americas, hoping to trap von Spee in that area. The second uh, force of interest was centred on two battle cruisers, the Invincible and Inflexible, and they'd been released by the Admiralty from UK waters on the 4th of November and then headed south via South America's eastern se seaboard. So you can imagine these two forces on opposite sides all heading south towards the, the tip of South America. 
Thanks, Jeff McKinley. Uh, these, this, uh, the two battle cruisers that David's just told us about. This force commanded by Vice Admiral Sir Dubton Sturdy. Can you tell us more about him? Well, certainly, uh, Vice Admiral Sturdy is certainly a controversial figure, and as Mark has indicated, uh, he started the war with a, probably a very poor record. He was serving as the chief of the Admiralty War Staff, a role he was poorly suited to and in which he was held responsible for several of the early disasters that befell the, rail, the RN, not just Coronel. He was certainly an officer who was found adapting to the new war and the social technologies uh, quite challenging. And while a student of naval history, he certainly understood and thereby understood the importance of organising and protecting sea train, trade, yet he underestimated the German submarine's threat and the danger it presented to traditional cruiser operations, that resulting in some disasters in the uh, Channel uh, area early in the war. Personally, he was considered by many of his peers to be pompous, he tended to micromanage the war staff, and he struggled to provide firm direction and proved unable to consult effectively inside and outside the headquarters. He was not a strategic commander. And certainly, uh, Sturdy's biggest failings were in the way he went about mobilising and using the newly uh, formed Navy. So the British Navy was going through a rapid period of mobilisation and trying to get as many forces to sea as it could. Um, but Sturdy pushed that fleet too quickly and with an inadequate time to prepare the forces correctly. Not enough time to store ships, not enough time to train the weapons, to bring together nucleus crews. And so whilst he was faced with some strong competing pressures with the German high seas fleet and the need to get the British army uh, deployed across the channel to France, he just didn't manage the threat of spade properly as the chief of the war staff. Nor did he pay uh, sufficient heed to the intelligence that was coming through of the possible movement of spade to the east. And he just didn't uh, act on the, the reality that Craddock's fleet was just uh, too inferior. And indeed, after the coronel defeat and the uh, angst that came with it, Admiral Fisher, newly returned as the first sea lord, was livid at him for how he had deployed antiquated and outclassed squadrons to the East Pacific, rather than the battle cruisers that Fisher had deliberately designed for this very mission to hunt down such raiding forces. So it is by chance and misfortune that Sturdy actually finds himself in the Falcons' battle, searching... Uh, he got there because Fisher wanted to get rid of him out of his headquarters and he was looking for an excuse to get him out. And so he was actually sent to clean up the mess he created uh, in the first place. He was appointed Commander-in-Chief of the South Pacific and was deployed very quickly with inflexible and invincible with virtually no notice. And whilst he was a bit um, put out that he'd been effectively sacked, he was actually uh, much better suited to this tactical role that he now took on. He was, he was actually a good surface tactician and well-versed in cruiser warfare and would go on to uh, much success in the, um, the main fleet later in the war. And he probably actually had a bit more initiative and independence of mind than was typical of his peers, although perhaps he's not saying a great lot. And in many ways he was actually quite fortunate to have this opportunity of a superior force against an enemy um, that had to be destroyed. So we're uh, now with Sturdy's two battle cruisers uh, arriving off the Falklands in the first week of December in 1914. Mark Bailey, what happens next? Well, Sturdy's voyage to the Falklands can be criticised for slowness and Sturdy would not have made it to Port Stanley in time for Von Spee's appearance had it not been for Captain John Luce of HMS Glasgow. Now, Glasgow had fought at Coronel and Luce insisted on the need for greater haste. Sturdy then allowed himself to be surprised at anchor in the harbour while coaling, although arguably through arguably inadequate sc uh, scouting provisions, with much larger, faster and more powerful ships. 
The British victory at the Battle of the Falklands was inevitable once Von Spee turned to run. He was quickly chased down and, and destroyed in a long-running battle. And Sturdy can't be criticised for that. That was a, a well-fought action under those circumstances. This victory was actually due, though, to the foresight of Admiral Sir John Fisher, who'd sent such a powerful squadron as soon as he was reappointed, as Jeff said, to the position of First Sea Lord at the Admiralty. Ironically, Fisher held Sturdy responsible not only for Craddock being placed in the impossible situation he was, but also uh, that Sturdy was responsible for, for mismanaging, again, as, John's, as, as Jeff said, the Admiralty's early war effort, and in particular for the loss of the cruisers Abacur, Hogue and Cressy in the North Sea with heavy loss of life. Sturdy's actual culpability, though, is probably somewhat less than Fisher's belief because Fisher was a man of remarkably strong views. Thanks. So we've got a, a battle happening on the other side of the Pacific from Australia. Uh, but David Stevens, uh, how does this battle have an effect on Australia's defence and upon the Royal Australian Navy? Well, Winston Churchill, the uh, First Lord of the Admiralty, immediately announced the restoration of peace in the Pacific and thereby assuring the safety of all nations' commerce, which was uh, good, a good publicity stunt. Um, however, on board HMAS Australia, such a result wasn't necessarily considered the best outcome. And in fact, uh, one young officer described it as the worst piece of good news that we have yet had. Um, on the lower deck, uh, an able seaman described the, the news somewhat more bluntly, blunt more bluntly, saying that the, the ship's company didn't half swear because we had considered them our game and were horribly disappointed at not getting a smack at them. But again, in practical terms, it meant that HMAS Australia, our flagship and battlecruiser, could be released to join the battlecruiser fleet in the North Sea, which is where the Admiralty had really wanted it uh, for quite a while. And once there, she became flagship of the second battlecruiser squadron and remained there for the remainder of the war. Um, at the same time, Melbourne and Sydney, which had been involved in the hunt for the Emden, um, had headed off to the West Indies. So it meant that Australia's maritime defence, after the destruction of the German fleet, on in both oceans um, surrounding us meant that uh, our maritime defence now depended on the older cruisers and of course the destroyer Fatilla. So you're really talking about a global impact, uh, an action which takes place off the Falkland Islands but has ramifications for Australia and the, the Royal Navy literally worldwide. Um, Tim Dobler, what is the, uh, the German side of this and, and what is the German reaction to the loss of the, the German East Asia squadron? Um, shortly after the Battle of the Falklands, uh, the destruction of the squadron and the loss of almost 2,200 German sailors uh, was ce celebrated as a heroic sacrifice and was used by the propaganda. Um, from a strategic point of view, the destruction of the East Asian squadron marked the end of conventional German warships outside European waters as its majority was sunken. Um, thereby, the German Admiralty was forced to rely more and more on auxiliary cruisers in the ongoing war. Um, until 1918, uh, at least 17 ships were converted into auxiliary cruisers, and uh, they've been able to sink uh, several hundred thousand tons of Allied tonnage. Yet their value in battle was very limited, as they have been inferior to every... Yeah, conventional warship. Um, although they became a threat to the major trade routes, as they were located not just in the Atlantic, but they came as far as uh, Australia. 
Thereby, they tied up a large number of warships and forced the Allies to patrol their sea lines of communication. I think the most uh, curious um, or the most uh, fascinating uh, example was the German sailing or tall ship, uh, the Sea Adler, uh, with um, its commander, Felix uh, von Luckner. Thanks. I must say that the... It's extraordinary that, that this uh, battle in, in a very remote place, I, I was in the Falkland Islands a few months ago and actually saw the memorial to the, to the Battle of the Falklands, but this, this battle off these remote British islands has, as you say, worldwide uh, effects. So can I ask each of you, each of our experts, to offer some thoughts on the fate of the German East Asian Squadron? Uh, going around the table, uh, Mark Bailey. Well, Vice Admiral von Spee was in an impossible strategic situation. He had very little chance of escape back to Germany. I mean, he's on the other side of the planet. He conducted a brilliant transit of the Pacific. He avoided his most powerful enemy there, and he won a significant victory off Coronel. Now, that victory disrupted all British trade on the South American West Coast, so he had a significant economic effect as well. But his, his luck could not hold forever, and it didn't. Yet the professional conduct and achievements of his squadron can be regarded really as a classic example of effective professional trade warfare. They certainly earned a respected place in naval history and one their country can be proud of. Thanks. Tim, uh, what's the German perspective on the, the fate of the German East Asian squadron? Um, Vice Admiral von Spey and... Uh, Rear Admiral Craddock are good examples of military leaders who fulfilled their duty against all odds. Um, at one point or another, both were outnumbered and with minor firepower. And at one point or another, both faced yeah, more, more or less the same fate and went down with their uh, flagships. Um, in the case von Spey, we know that he suspected not to return to Germany. After the Battle of Coronel, the squadron stopped at uh, Valparaiso, a city in Chile, and there he mentioned uh, that he wouldn't reach Germany to a retired German naval surgeon. He could not have known that his idea became true um, just a month later. However, his way of leading the East Asia squadron shows that he could analyze a situation very well and that he, that he possessed the ability to calculate his possibilities in a realistic manner. And faced his fate. As, as you say, officers on both sides probably suspected that they, weren't all, they, were, going, they were going to remain in the Pacific, and, and both did. Jeff McGinley, what are your thoughts? Look, to me, the fate of the German Asian squadron really speaks to the very nature of the Indo-Pacific theatre in sort of three broad ways. Firstly, just its immense size. It's indeed striking to remember that Spey's relatively small squadron was effective over half the globe, from the Indian Ocean um, far, and to far east as Chile. And indeed, as Mark was saying, he had worldwide impacts. It's just mind-boggling the size of the theatre. But secondly, the critical importance of the sea-land interface within this massive theatre... Forces rarely came into battle on the open oceans. They instead came into battle when one was trying to influence a point of land or the other was trying to deny it to the enemy, or where ships were trading between ports of land, or where ports were being used as a point of logistic resupply, or the land or coastline was a constricting point. Sending forces out into the wider open oceans in search of a decisive naval battle was generally quite pointless. 
And then finally, the importance of using sea control, however constrained in time and space, rather than spending excessive energy seeking out an enemy in an elusive, massive ocean. And Spay was incredibly effective, and that is, incred- that is impressive. But I actually consider the Australian fleet to have been even more effective, despite having fought only one rather small battle, that between Sydney and the Emden. Because it enabled the imperial use of the sea. It used sea control. It denied the waters of New Guinea and the broader southwest Pacific to the Germans. It enabled the projection of expeditionary forces to occupy German islands and to reinforce the control and cement its control of the southwest Pacific. It enabled, after a bit of a short interlude, imperial trade in its area and it enabled the projection of the Anzac land forces to the decisive theatre in Europe. What mattered was sea control, not some great naval battle, despite what the sailors and officers of the HMA Australia longed for, as all good sailors do. Mm. And David Stevens, your final thoughts? I'd like to bring it back to something that's been covered by um, all our experts here today, and that's intelligence. And the intelligence system and how important it was. Um, Again, coming back to the size of the area we're talking about, there was no way things were going to happen just by luck. It had to be... uh, Forces had to be queued to a location. And that was... uh, that wasn't really. That was certainly wasn't um, recognised at the time. At the same time, the intelligence wasn't necessarily up to achieving that. Um, it's important to remember that the REN had its own intelligence system, which had been set up before the war by a Commander Hugh Thring, who was Admiral Gresswell's assistant. And part of that process included taking charge of all the Australian wireless stations at the beginning of the war. And that meant that the REN was uh, capable of both traffic analysis and um, um, some limited code breaking eventually. And in fact, although we've talked about how the direction finding or the position building a picture wasn't terribly accurate because of the capabilities of the equipment, the point is that they were starting the journey. We were the only Dominion at this period with these sort of capabilities. And it certainly was a step looking towards the future. If I, may make, if I may make one small comment on that, uh, David's very right there. The Germans also had a very widespread intelligence system. During our research, we found that this extended from San Francisco right around to Rio de Janeiro. It fed a lot of information to Vons Bay, and in a very real way, what was occurring here was a battle between intelligence systems, which involved sea control, which involved ships, which above all else marks the beginning, as David had said, of that struggle of intelligence systems that, that goes on today. Mm. Uh, can I ask, uh, Tim Dobler, do you think that uh, Von Spey was, was unlucky to have been found on this vast ocean by these uh, Allied forces that were searching for him? Um, was he unlucky or, or was it inevitable that, that Von Spey's squadron would be found and eventually destroyed? Um, if we think of the... Um if, if we think of his situation and that he was highly outnumbered uh, by the Allied forces, even though they were spread uh, on uh, across the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean just to hunt him down, I think um, he wasn't unlucky. I think it was. Um, oh, sorry, I'm. I don't know how to say it. it I think it was uh, inevitable. Yeah, I think it was inevitable. I think it was just a matter of time um, 
he would have been found by uh, the uh, the Allied forces, and um, I think his um, his uh, his calculation of not returning to Germany was quite quite realistic. Mm. Mm, thank you. And can I thank all of our uh, experts? We've we've had a truly international panel of authorities in the the naval war of the Great War. Um, so can I thank Mark Bailey, Tim Durbler, Jeff McGinley, and David Stevens. And thank you all for listening to us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now. Thanks. <laughs>